Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today, instead of a usual Husband Material episode, I am going to be delivering a sermon on John 21, the same sermon that I preached at the recent Husband Material Retreat. It was so powerful that I wanted to share it with you. At one time, I actually thought I would be preaching sermons for a living back before I started Husband Material. And so I'm so delighted to get to use that gift to get into the Bible today with you all and to see Jesus more clearly and more compellingly for who he is, and to allow the Holy Spirit to use the word of God to do the work of God in us. Let me begin by reading our text for today, John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a fantastic story. I am titling this chapter and this sermon, How Jesus Reverses the Curse. What do I mean by the curse? I mean brokenness, sin, evil, everything that goes wrong in the world, Jesus is putting right. And he does it not just generically or vaguely. He does it in the specific stories of our lives. And the way he does it with Peter is worthy for us to behold, to pay attention to how the master redeemer goes about reversing the specific sin, the specific brokenness, the specific evil that Peter is still feeling the effects of when he goes fishing. Even after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, there's some unfinished business here between Peter and Jesus. And with all of us in our lives, there is unfinished business. We are never finished healing. We are never finished getting more freedom, more redemption, more restoration. There's unfinished business in each of our lives. And if you have ever felt too broken, too far gone, too sinful, or that there is no hope for you, then I believe that as we look at this chapter of the Bible, your imagination will be ignited for the story that Jesus is telling in your life. So we're going to look at the life of Peter as a case study of how Jesus reverses the curse in three ways. Number one, the rupture. Number two, the repair. And number three, the redemption. So if you're taking notes on this sermon, those are the three points I'm making. The rupture, the repair, and the redemption. The passage begins with Jesus revealing himself again to the disciples. What does that mean? Well, in John chapter 19, Jesus died. In John chapter 20, he rose again from the dead with a new body, being the same person, and revealed himself to all the disciples twice. And now in John 21, he's revealing himself again. Why? Because there's unfinished business with Peter. He's revealing himself specifically to repair the rupture with Peter. What do I mean by rupture? Well, Peter betrayed Jesus. 
And even though Jesus has already come back from the dead, and there's even a note after Jesus is risen when they say, go tell the disciples and Peter to make sure that Peter knows about it. But even though Peter already knows that Jesus died on the cross for his sins and rose again from the dead and loves him, Peter betrayed Jesus. He made the worst choices of his life when Jesus was most in need and they still haven't talked about it yet. Even though Jesus has come back and everyone's praising God, I wonder how Peter felt. You know how I would feel? I would feel awkward. I would feel incredibly awkward because, yeah, it's great for everybody else, but everybody else didn't deny him three times. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to get a little bit of backstory on Peter. I like to think Peter had an addictive personality. He was a man of extremes. He was either all in or devoted or defiant and wanted nothing to do with what Jesus was doing. We see him going back and forth all the time. And I can relate to that. And I think a lot of us who struggle with pornography can relate to that. One moment we are devoted, completely committed to Jesus. The next moment we turn our backs on him. One of the things I appreciate about Peter is his boldness and his defiant side, even while he's devoted to Jesus. During the Last Supper, before Jesus died, Jesus is washing everybody's feet. And Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then he says, then Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head as well. I mean, do you do you feel this aspect of Peter's personality? He doesn't do moderation. He is a man of extremes. And later on during that meal, he says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Even if everybody else ditches you, even if everybody else abandons you, I won't. There's a sense of resolution with that. Peter's saying, I'm going to be true. I'm going to be faithful for the rest of my life. And especially if you're on the journey of healing and freedom, if you're on the journey of outgrowing porn, I wonder if you've made a similar resolution. God, I promise I will obey you. I promise I will follow you no matter what it costs, no matter how painful it is. And yet this sense of resolution, especially for Peter comparing himself to others, even if everybody else rejects you, I won't, is actually based on shame. So even before Peter has abandoned and betrayed Jesus, even before his relapse, you might say, he's already operating out of shame. Why? Because it's coming from a place of performance and comparison. I will lay down my life for you. I kind of think Peter had the sense that he needed to perform for Jesus to love him. That he needed to be perfect. That he needed to keep his promise in order to be a real disciple. And also that he had to be better than everybody else. There's this theme of comparison that runs through Peter's life. And we'll talk about that later on in this passage, actually. But if Peter was in therapy, that would be a point of curiosity. Like, hmm, Peter, why do you always feel like you have to be better than everybody else? Why do you have to go above and beyond? Why do you have to perform? 
Well, Jesus sees right through it. He says, no, you won't lay down your life for me. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And then as Jesus is arrested and mocked and beaten and he's on his way to being crucified around a charcoal fire in the dark, people were asking him, are you his disciple? And he said, I am not. I am not a disciple of Jesus. Peter is in denial. He's hiding. He's rejecting his identity as a disciple of Jesus. That's who he is. But he's not living like it. He's also afraid. John very poetically writes that Peter is warming himself around a fire in the darkness. And it's almost a metaphor for self-preservation, for seeking his own selfish comfort and for being afraid of what would happen if he truly lived out his identity in that moment. And boy, I can relate to that. I know who I am. I am God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased, but you know, sometimes I don't live like it. And sometimes I'm afraid of what other people will think. And sometimes I deny who I am with the way I live my life. And in that moment, when Peter says, I am not his disciple in the book of Luke, there's a little sentence that says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter in that moment. Can you imagine making eye contact with your savior in your moment of deepest shame? In Matthew, it says, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And despite everything that happened afterwards where Jesus comes back from the dead, they still haven't talked about it. They still haven't repaired the rupture. And that is awkward. So, of course, Peter's avoiding Jesus. Of course, he goes back to fishing. That's what he did before he became a disciple. So, by fishing again and going back to his life as a fisherman, it may not be sinning per se, but he's giving up. He's giving up on his calling. He's giving up on Jesus. And I feel like that might be why some of the other disciples decide to go with him, just to be with him in his shame, in his despair. I think Peter's feeling disqualified. And rightfully so. He's feeling too broken. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like other people's sin? Yeah, but my sin is the worst. You know, none of the other disciples denied Jesus that night the way that Peter did. He felt uniquely, irreparably broken. And that's how many of us have felt in regards to pornography. In that place of rupture, knowing that Jesus is good and he's powerful and he's loving and that's great for everybody else, but for me, is there any hope? I wonder if some of you might be feeling that way right now. Like you have a calling from God and you've thrown it away. Or maybe you feel like you were making so much progress and you really believe that maybe this time I'm finally fully committed to following Jesus. And then you make a decision that absolutely baffles you. 
Maybe it's the worst choice you've ever made. And now you're wondering, is there any hope for me? Let's see what Jesus does with Peter. It says, when they went fishing that night, they caught nothing. And where Peter sees no hope, Jesus sees the perfect opportunity to love him like never before. Because that's actually the exact type of moment where Peter first met Jesus after a night of fishing where they caught nothing. And you can read about it in Luke chapter 5. So Jesus goes back to the beginning before all of this happened to their first encounter. It kind of reminds me of a married couple going back to the place where they had their first date and rekindling their first love. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment with Peter. Back when Peter first met Jesus and he had a night of catching no fish, that wasn't just a matter of being hungry. It was poverty. It was financial need. He needed financial provision. And you know what Jesus did? He filled up the net so full that they couldn't even contain all the fish. He's giving him an extravagant financial gift. The grace of God came to Peter and it changed him. Peter said back in Luke chapter five, when Jesus first met him, depart from me for I am a sinful man. I have to imagine that that's exactly how he felt when he went fishing. After years had passed, after Jesus rose from the dead, he's probably thinking to himself, I am such a sinful man. And by Jesus recreating this moment, it's almost like he's saying, well, Peter, you may have changed, but I haven't. And that's how Jesus comes to us. Whether we feel like a great success or a horrible failure, he hasn't changed. He can't love us any more or any less. He comes to us exactly the same as the very first time we met him with extravagant grace with an undeserved gift, with overwhelming kindness. And when Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Jesus said, follow me. I want you anyway. I believe in you anyway. Peter did. Somewhere along the way, he became rather overconfident in his own abilities to the point where at that last supper, he said, I will follow you no matter what. It's shame-based performance. And after everything that unfolded and his own confidence in himself crumbled, here again, Jesus is recreating that experience. Not to reprimand him, but to repair. Not to reprimand, but to restore. Not to reprimand, but to redeem. And when he says, follow me, it's him saying, I still want you. I still believe in you. There's nothing you can do that can change the way that I feel about you. That is the heart of Jesus Christ for every single man and woman in the world. It's unconditional love. And in that very context of unconditional love that inspires Peter to go swim to shore and they're having breakfast in this context of love, Jesus does something totally unexpected. He has a meal prepared around a fire, a charcoal fire, the same type of fire where Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus is triggering Peter. He's exposing 
Peter. All the other disciples knew what he had done, and they are there with him around that fire. And in that context, Jesus has a little one-on-one with Peter. I like to think of it as Peter in the hot seat. All the other disciples are watching. They know what he did. Peter knows what he did. They're around the fire. And in the hot seat, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times. He asks him three times. He takes him back to his moment of deepest shame and despair. Why would he do that? Not to reprimand, but to repair, to restore, to redeem. As Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 19 says, I will bring them praise and honor in every place where they have been put to shame. Another translation says, I will change their shame into praise in all the earth. Jesus is taking him back to that traumatic memory to heal it, to repair it, to make a new memory, a new association around a charcoal fire. And I think it's so beautiful that he calls him Simon, son of John. When I first noticed that, It felt significant to me and I wasn't sure why. Because, you know, Peter has these two names. Simon, his first name that he was born with, the name that he had all the way up until he met Jesus. And then Peter, which means rock, the name that Jesus gave him. And sometimes they call him Simon Peter. But here Jesus calls him Simon. And when I preached this message at the retreat, Mike in the audience said, That's what he was called when he was a little boy. Jesus is calling him by the name that he had when he was a little boy. Just speaking to that tenderness. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's so interesting to me that Jesus could have said, I love you. Simon, son of John, I love you. Simon, son of John, do you believe that I love you? Do you receive my love? But no, 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 he doesn't say that. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You see, Peter needed to know that Jesus loved him. And to some degree, he had witnessed that already with Jesus's death and resurrection and reappearance. And also in Jesus preparing this meal and meeting him in such a loving, extravagantly gracious way. So Peter is not so much questioning Jesus's love for him as his love for Jesus. Peter could see Jesus's heart somewhat clearly, but he could not see his own heart because when he looked in his heart, all he saw was sin. All he saw was shame. All he saw was hypocrisy. All he saw was all the reasons why God shouldn't love him and other people shouldn't even be there with him because he's so wretched. What he sees in himself is darkness. And Jesus is so gently, tenderly, compassionately saying, Do you love me? Looking him in the eyes, attuning to his heart, and giving Peter an opportunity to say, yes, I do love you. I am your disciple around a charcoal fire. Peter needed to see his own heart that despite these horrible decisions that he made and in his place of shame and despair, He actually still loved Jesus. Can you see your own heart? When you look in your heart, what do you see? My guess is, as you're listening to this podcast, 
despite whatever flaws or weaknesses or sins you see in yourself, there is also a love, a love for Jesus, a goodness in you, a beauty in you, and a strength in you that you really do love Jesus. This is what I needed to hear so badly when I was still going through the seasons of recovery and relapse, despite the poor choices I made, I really did love Jesus. You know, the men who I work with and who I talk to are some of the most loving men I've ever met. They love others so well. They love God so deeply. There's just one person they have trouble loving themselves. And Jesus in this moment is both challenging Peter to reaffirm his love, to reclaim his identity, and he's celebrating Peter. Peter, you really do love me. I know you don't feel like it, but you do. But he doesn't say, Peter, I know that you love me. He so respectfully gives him the space to make this decision for himself. If someone had asked Peter, do you love God? On the inside, he might have said, well, I say that I love God, but my actions don't show it. But for Jesus to ask him directly, do you love me, makes it so undeniable that this man is not all bad, that there is goodness and strength and beauty left in him, and his story is not over. And what happens next after he says, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Wait, you want me to do what? (laughs) What? I thought I was disqualified. Jesus recommissions Peter with his original calling. He says, it hasn't changed. I still want you to feed my sheep. I wonder if you've ever received that kind of a a calling or if you've ever had that kind of a mission or, or maybe a new role that you played as uh, maybe as a new employee or maybe as a leader in your church or maybe even as a husband or a father that you've been given a job that feels like you are not qualified to do it. I think Peter might even have some imposter syndrome about this. I certainly would. Jesus says, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. This is so redemptive. We go from rupture to repair to redemption. The lost sheep who wandered far away and strayed far away becomes the shepherd now. The defiant one now becomes the faithful, devoted one. The unreliable rebel that Peter felt he was comes back to his true identity as the rock. That's what the name Peter means. Jesus called him a rock. Woo! That's the opposite of what he believed about himself. He must have thought, I'm so unreliable. No one can depend on me. I betrayed and abandoned my best friend, my leader, the one who loved me like no one else did. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He's giving him a responsibility. I think it's the exact same way with us. Even in our worst moments, even when we feel most disqualified, we have a job to do given to us by Jesus. And it can be something small or it can be something big. And regardless, there is a sense in which Jesus is trusting 
Peter to take care of his people. It's baffling. It's mind-blowing. Jesus brings honor instead of shame. And then he says, follow me. The exact same phrase, the exact same instructions that Jesus gave to him in the very beginning when he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus said, follow me. He says, follow me again. In our unfaithfulness, in our relapse, in the midst of deep sin and shame, we are not told to wallow in it. We are not told to beat ourselves up about it. We are not told to make sure it never happens again and put in all the precautions. No, it's very simple. Jesus says, follow me. If you swerve off the road, don't stay there. Come back to the road and keep following Jesus. Don't meditate on all the ways that you failed and all the reasons why you're not worthy. Just come back to the road. Just keep following him. Keep your eyes on me, Jesus says. You follow me. And here's another layer of meaning to those two words, follow me. Back in John chapter 13, at that last supper, let me read to you exactly what it says in verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So do you hear that? Those words follow me. That's exactly the conversation that they had when, when Peter made his big promise. And of course, Jesus means follow me to the cross. Follow me into suffering. Follow me into death. And I wonder if there's multiple meanings to, to that. When Jesus says, follow me. Before, Jesus was saying, you're not ready to follow me. But now, in this moment, being restored, redeemed, recommissioned, you're ready, Peter. Follow me. It's time. Isn't that exciting? After the worst choices we've ever made. The posture of God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit toward us is one of compassion. Saying, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, follow me. Isn't that profound? And once again, Peter, the defiant one, responds with a little bit of pushback. Peter says, Lord, what about this man? Speaking about John, once again, he's going back to comparison. <laughs> he's going back to performance. And Jesus very simply says, you follow me. Come close to me. Stay with me. Let me lead you. Don't worry about anybody else. Their story is different than yours. Don't worry about whether everyone else seems to be progressing and you feel behind or if everyone else seems behind and you're doing great, irrelevant. You follow me. 
Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your ears attuned to my voice. Keep your heart beating in tune with mine and I will lead you. And in the passage, Jesus does give a little preview of the kind of death by which one day Peter will glorify God. Jesus is going to lead him back to a cross similar to his own. And yet, before all that happens, there's so much redemption. What does Peter do after this? Have you ever really thought about that? Like after this transformational encounter with God, where he's undoing so much of the brokenness and sin and evil in Peter's life, what happens next? I want to go into the book of Acts to give a little bit of a report, a praise report on Peter's life of what happens after this. In the book of Acts, Peter, who was hiding, who was denying his identity, who was afraid of what others would think and how they would respond to him, he goes public. He goes more public than anyone. The one who is hiding is not afraid to be seen. The one who was silent uses his voice. The little lamb who didn't want to be crucified with the lamb of God is now a roaring lion. In Acts chapter 3, Peter does what Jesus told him to do, which was to follow him. And in Acts chapter 3, he and John are walking together. Think about that. Collaborating instead of competing. One who he was comparing himself to, now they have camaraderie. They're walking and they heal a man in Acts chapter 3. And Peter says this, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Do you hear how he's not taking credit for it? He's not absorbed in himself. He is now in a place of confidence, not based on himself, based on Christ. Peter says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Oh, what a good reversal there. Around the charcoal fire at first, he said, I am not his disciple. Now he's saying, we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. Now, In that moment, Peter is talking about the man who he and John had just healed. I like to think that Peter was also talking about himself or at least speaking from his own experience, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. That's literally what Peter says publicly in front of everybody. He's bold. He's using his voice. He's reversing the curse and he's saying it in a way that he does not care who hears it. And of course, there will be consequences to that. In the next chapter, it says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, 
while they were speaking to the people. Now, mind you, these are the same people who arrested and crucified Jesus, who are now coming for Peter and John. So now Peter is facing the consequences that he was shying away from before. So courageously, it says that the priests and the captain of the temple guard were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Can you imagine what must have been going through Peter and John's mind when they get arrested at night, just like Jesus? They're probably thinking, we're going to go to the same fate as him. Peter's probably thinking, all right, now I'm finally fulfilling my promise that I will follow you until death. The next sentence says, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Incredible. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teacher of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Okay, Anas, I don't know how you say his name, and Caiaphas, they are mentioned specifically as the same guys who interrogated Jesus. And now it says they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Peter is literally going through step by step the exact same journey that he witnessed Jesus take that he was too afraid to take with him. And now he's in it. And he's not in it alone. He's in it with John, the guy who he was comparing himself to, his rival. Now they're brothers in this. They're going through it together. And it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter is reversing the curse. He is saying the kind of thing that he was too afraid to say around that charcoal fire. He's finally doing it in front of everybody. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And now see how they responded to him. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there was with them, there was nothing they could say. Annas and Caiaphas are speechless before Peter and John. It says, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So now they're going to try to shut him up again. Now they're going to try to intimidate him. Now they're going to try to trigger him and keep him in a place of fear and shame. And what happens next? It says, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
the little lambs have grown up. Simon is now the rock. He always was, but he wasn't living like it. He needed an encounter with Jesus. This timid, afraid man is courageous and bold, not because he was able to perform out of a place of inadequacy, but because he's been so unconditionally and extravagantly loved because he's been able to own his strength, his beauty, his goodness that Jesus brought forth. Wow. And at the same time, if you keep reading in the New Testament, Peter continued to make mistakes. It's all over the book of Acts. You see it in the book of Galatians too. He was not perfect, but he was a learner. He kept going. It was messy, but it was a mess worth making. And I want to remind you that on all of our journeys, it's messy. We make mistakes, but we are learners. We are disciples. That means we get to keep going. No matter what happens, no matter how badly we mess it all up, when we swerve off the road, we can come back. And Jesus's word to us is simple. Follow me. I want you. I still want you. I believe in you. And I still believe in you. I'm not embarrassed about you. I'm not ashamed of you. In fact, I want you to lead others. I want you to represent me. And you know what? He's not done. In verse 25 of John 21, the very last verse of the book, it says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Just like Peter's life, your life, and my life, our stories, books, that if all of them were written, the world itself couldn't hold them. Your life is one of those books where Jesus is reversing the curse and it's still being written in your shame, in your relapse. Jesus has compassion for you. The same Jesus who died for your sin out of his great love, who rose from the dead in his great power, who put his spirit in you. That same Jesus is so sensitive to your unique story. He will take you back to your place of deepest shame and despair, not to reprimand, but to repair. He will expose the unfinished business that you have with him out of compassion. Why? Because he's reversing the curse. Because sin and brokenness and evil cannot stay wherever he goes. He loves you. He sees you. He knows you. And he has a job for you to do, which is wild. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, his message is the same. Follow me. So I wonder, what is that charcoal fire for you? Where you rejected and abandoned your savior? Where now in your life? Is he giving you a unique path to redemption? He will take 
the one who feels unreliable and turn him into a rock. He will take the lost sheep and turn him into a shepherd. He can take you and whatever lies you've believed about yourself and flip them upside down. He's taken me, Drew, who felt so rejected, and he's turned me into an includer. How about you? I can't wait to hear reports from this podcast about how Jesus is reversing the curse in your life. Because you know what? If all the stories were to be written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus is writing a story in your life just like the one he wrote for Peter, and he's not done yet. And you can trust that because you are God's beloved son, and in you, he is well pleased. Well pleased.